You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Again, my name is Ben. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. Uh, Shortly after I became a Christian in college and started feeling like I wanted to be a pastor, I switched my major over to communication. I figured if I'm going to be speaking a lot, it would probably be a good idea to get a comms degree uh, to help me out a little bit in that pursuit. Uh, I did pretty good throughout my college career, but I remember I got one C, believe it or not, in a public speaking class of all things. Uh, The class was basically divided up into three speeches throughout the semester, and each speech was a different kind of speech, and you got to pick your topic. I don't remember what two of my speeches were on, but I do remember that one of my speeches was on faith and Christianity. I figured if I had the opportunity to pick something that I wanted to talk to a captive audience about, I'll pick what matters most to me. And so, of course, I chose faith. I also remember the professor of that particular class being a kind of agitated and grungy human being that I struggled to connect with. Anyways, about halfway through that semester, I gave this little speech about faith and Christianity. It wasn't combative, it wasn't mean-spirited, but I could tell that as I was giving this particular speech, the professor was really, really uncomfortable with my topic. I finished the speech, and I'm pretty comfortable with how it went, but then I get my paper back, and I remember looking at this horrible grade on the top of that paper with a word that I'll never forget written on the top of that paper, irrelevant. There was a rush of emotions that came into my heart through that moment. On the one hand, I was so shocked and kind of wounded, but on the other hand, I was so glad because I was able to give that speech. I was able to give the most relevant speech of that entire semester, and his grade ultimately couldn't change that. Now, in college, like some of you, I talked about my faith a whole lot. I wasn't obnoxious about it, but I look back on that moment and I wish that that was the only episode where faith brought unintentional tension. Uh, Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, Like the majority of universities out there, I was in a pluralistic world of ideas where being a Christian could sometimes bring unwanted tension and sparks. What I mean by that is that virtually everybody I went to school with didn't share my faith. Yet God still loved all of them and wanted them to know him for real. But because there were so many different beliefs and belief systems there on campus, the Christian message and the Christian life sometimes didn't comfort people. Instead, it bothered people. They saw it. They heard it, and they processed it not as a message of love and grace and truth, but as a hostile message. 
It shook them. It contradicted components of their belief systems. And sometimes, unintentionally, it would cause friction. Now, if you find yourself in Christ this morning, there's nothing new about this reality. And you probably have your own stories where so long as you weren't being obnoxious or mean-spirited, there was real friction and sparks that flew as a result of your faith in Christ. And this is exactly what Jesus told his first disciples to expect. He told them to not be surprised if the world hates them because it hated him first. And later on, John, who will meet a little bit more in this passage, adds this later in life in his letter. Do not be surprised if the world hates you. The point is, is we live in a beautiful world. And we don't ever want to be obnoxious about our faith or arrogant about our faith. But sometimes what we believe about Jesus and the life he calls us to rubs people the wrong way. We don't look for that tension for tension's sake. We don't pray for that conflict for conflict's sake. But because we live in a world with lots of different opinions and lots of different ideas and sometimes competing interests, if hostility finds us, and it will if we're trying to be faithful, often there's no other option but then to be humble, courageous, bold, and true about all that Jesus is and about all that he will be for the world. And that's really what the passage we're looking at this morning is all about. That's really what this sermon is really all about. That's really the main idea of today's message, which is speak the truth. Speak the truth. Not our truth, not truth when it's convenient, but the truth. Of course, with love, with grace, wisely and timely, but also with all boldness. It's what we see the apostles doing in this chapter, and today we can learn a lot from this unfolding scene. Now, they're going to be up on the screen, but there are three particular plot movements in this passage, and this morning we'll walk through each of these movements, each of these scenes as this big scene develops, and together reflect on what God is saying to us through this particular passage. First, we see the arrest. We'll see that in the first four verses, and then we'll get a hearing in the latter verses, and then finally a warning in Acts 4, 13 through 22. So let's look at this first scene, the arrest. Verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, a little bit of recap here on our series in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is short for the book of the Acts of the Apostles. It's a record of the ongoing work and life of Jesus through the apostles by his spirit. It's essentially a continuation of the life and the work of Jesus through his church. 
And so far in the book of Acts, we've seen some really amazing events. We've seen the coming of the Spirit of God, where God reboots and relaunches and retasks his people. We've seen some powerful sermons from the Apostle Peter, where he describes and he explains the Christian gospel from the Old Testament, and thousands and thousands of people believe. We've seen the closeness and the unity of the church, where the early church was marked by this radical unselfishness and care for one another. And then last week, we saw the first big miracle through the apostles. Jesus, through John and Peter, heals a man who is crippled from birth. He couldn't walk. And the text tells us that through this miracle, this man stands up for the first time, and he's leaping for joy, and he's praising God, making a huge scene like he had won the lottery. And hundreds of people, they rush in, and uh, they, they recognize him as this disabled man who is now full of strength and was praising God. And the text says that they're speechless, and they're amazed. This would be similar to if perhaps like a, a stranger was paralyzed or unable to walk and was hanging around Union Station or the Capitol. And after some time of frequenting there, you start to recognize his face. And then all of a sudden, one day you're walking around one of those particular sites and that person's standing up in full strength, praising God, thanking God for all of his perfect power and miracles. It would make you stop and think. And it made a lot of people stop in their tracks here in the first century. A crowd eventually gathers, and Peter, who this miracle came through, he, he stands up and he tells the crowd that it wasn't him or John who healed this disabled man, but it was through the name of Jesus that this man was healed. And Peter, of course, starts explaining the gospel of Jesus. He makes sure he links the healing of this man to the person and the power of Jesus. He explains the, the Old Testament, how the whole book points to Christ. He explains the atonement of Jesus, how Jesus Christ died for our sins. He explains the gift of repentance, how though their sin put Jesus on a cross, they can find forgiveness and life through faith and repentance towards God. And then he starts explaining this new creation, a resurrection reality where everything is going to be made new. How all the sad things in life will one day be made untrue. How Jesus in his resurrection himself is the evidence of this reality. And one day all who know him will taste this resurrection and more to come. And just as he's reaching the crescendo of this sermon in Acts chapter 3, and four, it's right here where we pick up. At this climactic moment in Peter's message where he's talking about this new creation, how one day all things will be made new, these religious leaders have had enough. And in verse 1, it says, The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees come and they stop Peter's message. The text says that they're really angry because they, the apostles, were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. 
They arrest them, they put them in custody for the night, but Luke, the writer of Acts, adds that even despite the absence of Peter and John, the church keeps growing. People keep believing, and there's about 5,000 now who believe. Now, historically, the, the priests here were religious workers at the temple, and the captain of the temple was like the chief of the police who protected the temple. Uh, the Sadducees, on the other hand, who are probably the most ticked off in this party, were two of one of the two big Jewish religious parties, the other one being, of course, the Pharisees. This would perhaps be similar to how we talk about Presbyterians and Baptists or Republicans or Demo Democrats. They're one of the two big parties there back in that day. And they're probably the most ticked off with Peter's message because unlike the other Jewish groups, they were pretty anti-supernatural. Uh, they didn't believe in an afterlife. Uh, they didn't believe in a resurrection. And they seemed to pretty much not believe that God was involved in everyday life. But what probably ticked them off the most, as you read through the text of the Bible, and as you look at the historical facts, it probably is the very same thing that ticked off the other Jewish leaders and the priestly groups just as much. And it was this, is that Peter was saying the Jewish Messiah was for the whole world. He was saying that Jesus is the universal Savior, the Savior of all. Now, that was really problematic for the Jews, especially the priestly class, because although they believed the Messiah was coming, they believed that Messiah was a private Messiah, that Messiah would be for the Jewish nation alone, that that Messiah would come in power and throw off the Roman oppression and free and exalt the Jewish nation. But here Peter's saying that the Messiah, he's for everybody. He's the savior of the whole world. And it's in a way that they didn't think. It's in a way that they didn't think that it would roll out. And in effect, this truth brings a lot of tension. It implied to those religious leaders that their entire interpretation of the Old Testament was off. It implied to those Jewish leaders that their entire understanding of the temple is off. That truth implied to those leaders that their entire understanding of the Jewish nation itself is wrong. And of course, this gets Peter and John into some very unwanted but necessary trouble. They get arrested and the text picks back up the following morning with a hearing in verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. This is like the royal family mixed with the mob. There's a lot of firepower here on two guys. And verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, 
By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So Peter's not mincing his words here. Remember just about 40 days ago, this same court with these same power players condemned and sentenced Jesus to die for blasphemy, for claiming that he was God. And back then, Peter was afraid. As we read through the Gospels, we learn that Peter actually denied Jesus. He wanted to avoid association with Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. But here he is, about 40 days later, and he's kind, but he's filled with all boldness. He's speaking the truth. And probably in the back of his head, the back of his mind, he was thinking, hey, this is the same court that Jesus went through. Maybe they're going to try to get rid of me too. But he's filled with boldness. He's filled with a new perspective because he had seen and he had spoke with, he had learned from the resurrected Jesus Christ. And notice also the text says Peter was extra empowered because the Spirit fills him up here in verse 8. He's respectful, he's direct, he's bold, and he's clear. He's like somebody who can say really harsh things, but in a really nice way. He essentially says here that they killed Jesus, and although they thought they got rid of him, God raised him from the dead. And Peter says that the same Jesus, that same Jesus they tried to get rid of, has healed this crippled man which implied something really, really deep. It implied that these religious leaders were on the wrong side of God's work in the world. They were in some trouble. Ultimately, they were the ones on trial, not Peter and not John. And then Peter sums up everything he's been saying in the last three chapters. He says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, he makes a really, really strong universal truth claim. He says that Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only name. That there is no other name. There is no other path. There's no other ideology strong enough, powerful enough to save that is to restore our relationship with God, to give us peace with God. For Peter, that's true because of all that Jesus is, because of the bigness of who he is, what he's done, and what he promises to still do. The text continues into our, our third scene, the warning, and you can guess where this is going, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. In other words, these were people who weren't part of the educated priestly class, and people who weren't part of that class wouldn't be talking with such confidence and such proficiency to the highest Jewish court. They'd be more timid and much less proficient. But Peter and John had been with Jesus. 
They earn their PhDs in the scriptures through closeness to Jesus. They'd been taught the Bible for real by Jesus. And they were filled with all boldness by God's spirit. And that tripped up the religious leaders quite a bit here. The text continues in verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So now they're really tripped up. Uh, There's not much you can say to that. In verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man of whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Apparently that's old back then. So the council gives them a warning. Instead of asking, what do we do to get right with God? What do we do to find salvation? They ask, what do we do to keep our power? What do we do to stay in charge? The New Testament later reflects on these leaders and says they love the praise of man more than the praise of God. So these religious leaders at the time, they're concerned more about doing damage control rather than taking seriously the message of repenting and believing. And so they tell the apostles to stop talking in the name of Jesus. Stop with these truth claims. Stop with trying to discredit us. And Peter and John hear this, and again, notice they respond respectfully, but boldly in this famous verse. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Or as the New American Standard Version says, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, the apostles dropped another truth claim. The claim was that they had seen and that they had heard God in the person of Jesus. They were one. And because they had been faithful to God and because they desired to continue to be faithful to God, they were going to continue to speak in that name no matter the cost. The truth implied probably quite uncomfortably that these religious leaders were on the wrong side of things once again. They might have had their position, they might have had their power, but they were dead wrong. The text ends with these leaders still in a bind, and all they can really do is talk a little bit louder and threaten them a little bit more. And then we see Peter and John, of course, go on their way unfazed and committed to speaking the truth and pleasing God. Now, there's a lot here, but I want to zero in on truth and truth claims 
this morning as we think about what is God saying to us through this passage. As I mentioned back in college, I realized that I was in a pluralistic world of ideas where not everybody shared my beliefs and where being a Christian could sometimes bring unwanted tension and sparks. I mentioned that there were so many different beliefs and belief systems operating on my campus that the Christian message and the Christian life sometimes didn't comfort people, but instead it bothered people. They saw it and they heard it and they processed it not as a message of love and grace, I mentioned, but some took it as a hostile message. It shook them. It contradicted their particular belief system and sometimes, unintentionally, unfortunately, that would cause friction. Now, the truth is college campuses are not the only places where there is a pluralistic world of ideas. Practically everywhere we go today is a pluralistic world of ideas. The restaurant that you may go to after the service, the high-rise you may live in, the families that you may find yourself in, the place you work, and so on. There are a hundred and thousands of different ideas, convictions, and beliefs wherever you find people. We live in a diverse world with lots of ideas and lots of different takes. And also, the most common idea among this world of ideas today is an idea called moral relativism. It's essentially the idea that there are no universal truths, there are no absolutes. And so comments today like, Jesus is the only way to God, Jesus is the savior of the whole world, and that this is the one true faith and religion are often met with real pushback from people who would say these beliefs are outdated. And that Christians need to realize we now live in a pluralistic, relativistic society and that universal truth claims like this can't exist anymore. They would say that statements like this are narrow-minded, they're weird, and that there's no way people in this diverse world can ever have peace unless Christians give up these claims and say that all religions are equally valid and good. But I also want to remind us this morning, this environment of pluralism and relativism and lots of ideas and lots of gods and lots of different faiths is always how it's been in our world. And on this side of eternity, it's always how it's going to be. The reality is, is the same context the early church and Peter and John were birthed into here in this passage is practically the same environment we find ourselves into today. It's an environment where sometimes universal truth claims are dismissed or discouraged or seen as closed-minded or backwards. The kind of environment where beliefs like Christianity is the only right religion, if met with the right person, can cause unwanted tension and sparks and get possessors of that statement or that truth thrown into real or proverbial jail. 
But it's important to consider together that just as the early church thrived in this environment and they held the line in their pluralistic, relativistic context, so we're called to do the same in our very similar pluralistic, relativistic context today. I have just three thoughts of application as we seek faithfulness to God in speaking the truth in an often confused world. Number one, the world without absolutes leads to injustice. Number two, everybody's making truth claims. And number three, there is no way to believe in Jesus if he's the same as everybody else. Number one, a world without absolutes leads to injustice. There was an article a few years back by a professor up in New England who didn't have any type of faith in God, and she was a convinced and still remains a convinced moral relativist. During her career, she was exposed through the university to how certain women were treated in rural parts of Africa. And the way that these women were treated caused outrage in her heart caused extreme tension in her heart. And she got very passionate, and she started speaking and writing about the issues. But in her article, she describes as how she pushed back harder and harder against certain subcultures and how these leaders were treating women. They responded and said essentially to her, don't impose your Western values upon us. And she says in her article that this response left her absolutely stunned because she realized they were right and she had no moral ground or basis to denounce what they were doing. She said, I realize that because I'm a cultural relativist, I have no basis for saying my feelings are right and theirs are wrong, and I have no way to persuade. I only have the ability to use the power I have as a white Western person to put pressure on those cultures to stop and I'm going to do it. Essentially, in her framework of a world without absolutes, there's no way to speak authoritatively against injustice. And she sees that, uh, but she ignores the inconsistency, and she says she's going to anyways based on power and feeling. Now, there are a dozen examples of this. If everything in this world is relative, and there are no absolutes, it's impossible to say whose moral feelings are right and whose moral feelings are wrong. For instance, some questions. If one culture believes another culture devalues children, what ultimate right do they have to speak any binding truth or any moral obligation on that culture to change? Aren't those just their relative values? How do we speak against greed and materialism? Without absolutes, without truth, it makes us helpless and passive in the face of real injustice. Now, as Christians, in a general sense, we have an obligation to make the world a better place. Jesus says we are the salt and the light of the world. We're also called to be peacemakers, which means we stand for the truth. We stand for justice in our careers and in our lives. And it's important to remind ourselves this morning that 
This world is God's world. That there is truth. There is right and wrong. There is justice and injustice. Pretending everything's ultimately relative, that you have your truth and I have my truth, at the end of the day doesn't help anybody. In fact, it actually hurts in most cases the most vulnerable. And knowing Jesus means we'll fight for righteousness and we'll fight against unrighteousness. We don't want to do that in a way that makes us zealots who use absolutes in order to oppress. We want to be people who stand for the truth and yet are marked by service and love. People who don't look down on others or feel superior to others or trash others, but people who are marked by love and service. And of course, this is pictured for us in the gospel of Jesus. Uh, The same Jesus who didn't come riding a horse, slashing people because of their unrighteousness, but a Jesus who came and gave up his power and gave up his prestige to serve us and love us so that God's truth, God's love could come into our hearts. Number two, another factor to remember as we seek to speak the truth is that everybody is making truth claims. I want to point out that sometimes we can get uncomfortable because we see truth claims, ultimate truth claims, universal truth claims as arrogant. Uh, We see them this way because they're exclusive. And ultimately, truth claims are exclusive. They're, They're ultimately saying someone's right, something's right, and something is wrong. And essentially, the argument today goes like this. We have a big world out there. It's a pluralistic world. And there are a lot of people with all sorts of different takes on God and faith and non-faith. And if you say your religion, if you say Christianity is the one true faith, we're never going to have a peaceful society. So the only way forward... The only way we can find peace is to say everything is relative and everything is valid. Now, this is the common view of today where the assumption by most people is that religion can be privately and subjectively helpful. It can be advantageous to you in your personal life. Uh, Whatever religion you believe in your private life, Whatever religion you adhere to, it can be helpful to you to give you morals. It can help be helpful to give community. It can be helpful to give comfort. But publicly, the common thought goes, truth claims about God are invalid on an objective level. The thought behind this is basically that God and spiritual reality are too big for us humans to make claims about as it pertains to truth. So ultimately, the argument goes, no one can say this is the right way to believe. So the basic conclusion is that every religion is equally helpful. Every religion is equally valid. And if we just say that, we're going to have peace. Now, logically, there's only two ways that all religions can be equally valid. Number one, there's no God. There's no God. So what religion really is, is everybody just kind of imagining what God would be like. 
It's a projection of what God would be like. But there's really no universal God. There's really no universal truths. There's no real God. So all of our imaginations are subjective, and so it's all just equally valid for what he would be like. Number two, all religions could be equally valid if there is a God, but he's so impersonal that he doesn't care what you believe. So to say that all religions are equal, that all religions are valid, even if they're contradicting each other, doesn't really matter because God is so impersonal. He's just an impersonal force out there, and he's removed from one's life. Now, if this is somebody you know, or perhaps this is you that you would hold to, that all religions are equally valid, that all religions are equally true, and perhaps you come up to a Christian and you say, hey, you shouldn't believe you have the one true religion. You should believe all religions are ways to God, and they're all equally valid and helpful. I just want to point out what that person is doing, perhaps what you are doing in that moment, is you're actually saying, I have a particular view of God, since saying all religions are equally valid and true is a particular view of God. You're saying, I have a particular view of God, and you must adopt it. You must accept the truth and abandon your own view. And I want to point out, at that point, what that person is doing is being exclusive. They're making absolute statements. They're making absolute truth claims on God and spirituality. They're evangelizing. They're trying to convert you or a Christian to what they believe is ultimate truth. Now, usually someone from this perspective is unaware of what they're doing, but they're doing the very thing they accuse Christians of doing, and that's being exclusive. It's believing in absolute truth. The point is, is that everybody makes truth claims all the time. Everybody's evangelizing all the time. We can be arrogant in the way that truth is communicated, but speaking the truth by its nature is exclusive. Doesn't mean we have to be arrogant. It just means that, like Peter and John, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Finally, a third thought when it comes to speaking the truth faithfully. There's no way to believe in Jesus if he's the same as everybody else. As we'll see as we continue our study in the book of Acts, the tension and sparks are only going to get worse. Followers of Jesus are going to continue to make these universal truth claims about God, about Jesus. And while many believe there's going to be many instances where Jewish and Roman and Greeks and others lose their minds over these truth claims and the implications in life. For instance, Roman society was totally fine with tons of different gods and tons of different lifestyles, but only if Caesar was equal to the highest God, only if allegiance to Caesar was priority. And Christians come along, and they can't do that. Uh, they can't say allegiance to Caesar is higher than allegiance to Jesus. They can't even put them on the same footing. And, of course, massive conflicts 
will ensue for centuries. And today, it's the same problem. The thought goes, hey, our neighbors are Hindu, our neighbors are Buddhist, our neighbors are Muslim, our neighbors are secular, and we need to get with the times. You can't say your truth is the only truth. You need to adapt. If people are going to believe in Jesus and we're all going to get along, you have to adapt and you have to say that Jesus is equally valid and equally respectful and not superior in any way to Buddha or Hindus, religions or Gandhi or Moses or Muhammad. They're all respectful. They're all on the same footing. This is exactly what my Uber driver said just two days ago. We were, we were talking about faith, and he was a really nice guy. And he said he's Hindu, and he said he respects Jesus. He respects all the founders. He loves all the founders the same way. But there's a massive problem with this, and it's this. There's no way to believe in Jesus if he's just the same or on equal footing as everybody else. Now, I'm all about respect, and as I mentioned, I don't believe in trying to unnecessarily offend. But if we take Jesus at his actual words in Scripture, it's impossible to believe or respect him as he's not the same, if he's the same, I should say, as every other founder, every other religious leader. That's because Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be pre-existent. He said, before Abraham was, I am. It's because Jesus said one day he will come back and destroy all evil and end all suffering and make all things new. It's because Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In other words, Jesus, the Son of God, made such intense claims about himself so intense that if he's not the son of God, if he's not who he says he is, then he's insane. He's a lunatic. He's not equal to any of our great human teachers or religious founders. He's not respectful in any way. He's actually crazy. But if he is the son of God, if you read the scriptures and you believe that he did rise from the dead, if you look at the uniqueness of his teachings, the beauty of his character, his words, the goodness of all that he is, and you believe the inevitable implication of any belief in him at all is that he's the only way to God, that he is the truth. In other words, if it's not true what he said, then he's not a way at all. It's a sham. It's a lie. But if it's true what he said, then he's the way. He's the only way. And that way is open to all who would call on him and believe on him in faith. And this morning we stand on that truth. We stand on the truth that there is a God, that there is truth, and that Jesus himself is the revelation, the revealing of God to man and woman that he's a personal God, and that he loved us so much that he died for us and because of us, and that God raised him from the dead, and that one day all who know him and trust him will have a resurrection like his, a new life like his. And as believers, we want to speak that truth. 
We want to be sensitive, but we also want to be bold. We want to be humble about when and how. We want to be filled with his spirit to speak clearly and timely and wisely. And we want our hearts to actually be moved by the reality of the truth of all that Jesus is and all that he's done. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.